Welcome everybody to the Pop Anime Comics Lounge, Episode 6. My guest today is Denny O'Neill, who is a comic book writer slash comic book editor who's written Green Arrow, Batman, he's written Wonder Woman, and so many other great titles in DC, as well as some titles in Marvel. He's also, as I stated, edited a bunch of Batman, and he's one of the longest reigning editors on the Batman franchise up to this date. This interview is divided into two parts. This is part one. Just want to let everybody know that part two will be out next week. So stay tuned for part two next week. Best way to find part two is to subscribe to this podcast so this podcast finds you and you don't find it. Before we get into the interview, I just want to mention that if you'd like to support this podcast, please check out popanimecomics.com. Click on support the podcast link. There's a link to amazon.com, which if you're going to do shopping on amazon.com, if you click it, I get a small percentage back, which helps to keep my production costs lower. So here's the interview, everybody. I hope you enjoy it, and hopefully you'll stick around for part two next week. How did you get into comics? By accident, I uh, <clears throat> was working on a newspaper in a little uh, southeast Missouri town, and I wrote a couple of articles about the revival of comics. This was when Stan Lee and uh, Julie Schwartz were in the process of reinventing comic books and superheroes after almost 10 years of uh, near extinction. And I wrote about that, and one of the, pay, the well, Roy Thomas's parents subscribed to the paper. Uh, Roy got in touch with me. I went to interview him. I had a fantastic Sunday afternoon in his apartment because, uh, I, I mean, he was introducing me to this whole subculture that I had no idea existed. I thought it was all very nifty. So I wrote another piece about Roy, who was had just accepted an offer to go to work for Mark Weisinger at DC Comics. And Roy and I hung out a little bit, and then he went to New York, and some time passed, about a month, and he got in touch with me, had uh, stopped working for Mort after two weeks, and gone to work for Stan Lee in Marvel Comics. Excuse me, was just beginning to happen. It was bursting forth. So um, he sent me uh, Roy, uh, Stan, who had been doing everything himself for years had hired Roy and as an assistant, and he needed another assistant. So they sent me the Marvel Writer's Test, which was four pages of Jack Kirby pencils. And, you know, if I wanted to, if I wanted to accept this mission, I would um, add words to those pictures. So who wouldn't do that? It took about 10 minutes. I thought it was fun. I sent it back, and they offered me a job. Well, okay, you're this <clears throat> 25-year-old guy, Navy veteran, college graduate, but in a town, in a, in a job that didn't seem to have much future, and I had managed to make some enemies in town with a 
an ill-advised prank I pulled on the police department. Uh, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, somebody's saying, come to New York City and write comic books. So in the, late at night, I packed up my car and I started driving east and uh, hooked up with Roy in Manhattan. And I was off and running. So how much experience before you took this job at Marvel did you have writing comics? Absolutely none. I had no idea what the technique was, what I had to learn, what I didn't have, uh, what I didn't know. Uh, I had, to, you know, I had, it never occurred to me to be a comic book writer. I, I didn't, I guess I wasn't really aware that there was such a thing. If I'd thought about it, of, of course, I would have realized there had to be, but I, I didn't. I didn't have any reason to. I admired in creative writing in college, and I knew I wanted to write uh, something. I was, I was pretty sure after when I left college that I wouldn't write fiction anymore. I didn't see any, any future in that. So I, I did, in the Navy, I did journalism. After about a year of substitute teaching in St. Louis, when I got out of the service, I uh, got a newspaper job in southeast Missouri, and I guess I thought I would be a Missouri journalist for the rest of my life, or the rest for rest of my foreseeable life. Uh, I didn't, didn't know how to write comics. I didn't know anything at all about the business. So I was assigned uh, to finish a script that Roy had started featuring Patsy and Hetty, Girls on the Go-Go. I, I guess you, you, you would now call it a romance comic. And then I did Millie the Model, Modeling with Millie. And that, I had no idea at the time, but I, I that was the best possible initiation I could have had because it was a way to learn the basics uh, and yet those were not books that anybody was paying a whole lot of attention to so it was a, a place to learn uh, the basics at, you know comic book writing 101 and not too much was at stake. If I screwed up, well, that wouldn't be a catastrophe. Uh, and also there was no place to learn comic book writing. There were no books on how to do comic book writing. There were no courses. Uh, you just had to pick it up. Well, my job was to imitate Stan Lee. Now, everybody imitates somebody at the beginning. Nobody, you know, is a genius out of the box. And my job was to imitate the guy who was arguably the best comic book writer in the world at that time. And, and get paid for it. Uh, again, that was an enormous bit of luck. And after six months, I went freelance. And... Some of the stuff I was doing for Marvel, I 
changed or worked on, adapted it, uh, and kind of, you know, developed uh, my way of writing comics. I think uh, one size does not fit all. I don't know of any two writer, comic book writers that I consider, you know, top of the line that do it exactly the same way. You start out doing it the way somebody else does it because you have to start somewhere and somehow. And then if you keep at it, you will develop your own, the way of doing it that's comfortable for you. So that's the way it worked out. Eventually, I wrote a book on how to write comic books. And I've been teaching for, I don't know, a quarter of a century, more or less. There are stuff you can learn. I mean, the, the ultimate answer to how do I learn to write comics is, or write anything else, is sit down and do it. You teach yourself. But you can have... Uh, you, uh, a teacher can point you in directions that might be good for you. And that's a long answer to a short question. So while you were working at Marvel, how much creative control did you have on the comics that you worked on? Absolutely none. <clears throat> Apart from the fact that I got to write, make up the stories and I got to write the dialogue. And that's that's plenty. I didn't have any control about the direction the books were going. I would, if I went back into D.C. today, I wouldn't have much, if any. That's that's not the, if you're working on television, uh, if you're just a writer as opposed to a producer or showrunner, you don't have any direction about the, the characters' lives. You kind of do what you're told. Uh, that's an old story. Uh, almost nobody in history who did creative work had total freedom, maybe maybe 19th century novelists. But everybody works for somebody. And employment is always a part of the equation, and you have to remember that it's like like being a kid playing ball. Uh, they own the bat. They own the gloves. Their daddy owns the ballpark, and you are allowed to play. I found that to be a perfectly satisfactory situation, and I guess I still would if I, when I work for television. It's been that way. Most of the novels I've written have been adapted from somebody else's work. And while I had a certain amount of freedom, I was basically retelling somebody else's story. That That's the nature of the beast. The longer you stay at it, and if you become reliable and useful to the editors, then you you get more freedom. So as the Batman editor, I had almost... For all practical purposes, I did have control of those characters. The company trusted me not to do, to cross any taboos, and I had no interest in doing. I didn't want to do sex and gore. Uh, I think that that is very seldom good storytelling. So as long as the books were turning a profit, 
and I didn't cause any outrage. They let me do what I wanted, and that that worked out very well for both the company and me. I, I actually I did cause some outrage. Uh, we had done a year-long story uh, subplot where Gordon, because he's a smoker, gets ill, seriously ill, and uh, we ran that. Uh, arc, and then I wrote a, an ad to go with it, anti-smoking ad. And in one panel of one comic book, Batman is standing on a roof, and like maybe three buildings down, there's part of a billboard that has a cigarette ad. Okay, my bad. I I should have caught that, and I should have questioned it, but I didn't. And they a guy in New York City who was working as the consumer advocate, a uh, fellow who seemed to love cameras, he raised some hell about that. And uh, you know the irony was, but we had just spent a year doing anti-smoking stuff. Uh, I, uh, so I put on my jacket and I was going to walk over to NBC where... Uh, this guy, I think, had first appeared. Uh, that was like a block away, and I was gonna, tell you, you know, let them tape a reply. And cooler heads prevailed. Before I could get out the door, somebody said, "Well, you know, if you go and tape this reply, then he will tape a reply to your reply, and this will drag on for days. Uh, if you just..." Let it pass. Everybody will have forgotten about it within 24 hours, and that's pretty much what happened. But that was that was a case where there was some outrage when we did the death of Robin. That upset some people. Uh, there was another time when I mentioned a religion. Uh, I had a bad guy. Gave, uh, actually, it was, I think, Jim Starlin who wrote the dialogue, but I certainly let it pass. And the idea was this, this, this opinion is being delivered by a really evil guy. But nonetheless, some people got upset about that. Uh, at Marvel, once I did a scene where somebody was using cocaine, and that, that caused some fuss. In some of those instances, I screwed up. I should have been more sensitive to the situation, more alert to possible problems. In other situations, well, you know, I was telling a story. I wasn't advocating. I, it wasn't even me. My freelancers, whom I trusted, were telling a story. And we upset some people. I'm sorry about that. It's not what I wanted to do. On the other hand, we were telling us. So as a writer, what advice do you have when you make a mistake in a comic book? Well, I used to cry a lot and I used to hit my head against the wall. Though <laughs> It bothered me at first and it still bothers me to the extent that I don't, don't generally read published stuff. Once it leaves my computer, I'm done with it. And mistakes creep in. Generally, they're not important. If we did things like uh, those 
year-long continuities. We did those great big stories that involved all the characters that uh, were in our stable. Little mistakes are going to creep in. In one scene, Batman is fighting three thugs in the other, and then, then uh, a few pages later, it's two, two thugs, that kind of thing. You don't like it. On the other hand, that's an enormously complicated job done under terrific deadline pressure. And I've gotten to be a little bit mellow about it, saying I am a long way from perfect, and I've always known that. So if I give it my best shot, and I always try to do that, do the best job I'm capable of doing at that time, whatever it is, and I screw up once in a while. I don't like that, but I don't think I'm going to flog myself for it So you came over to DC after you were done working with Marvel. Who was responsible for bringing you into DC Comics? Well, uh, it's, it's funny you're asking that because I did a movie shoot yesterday. Somebody's making a documentary about Charlton Comics, and that's that's the short answer to your question. I was, after leaving Marvel staff, I was a freelancer. I was doing a little journalism. Somewhere in there I wrote a book uh, on presidential elections. It was a, a book that was designed to be given as Christmas presents by corporations. They would buy them in wholesale lots. Uh and Steve Skates told me about this guy, Dick Giordano, who would come into New York City on, I think it was Thursday morning, and plant himself in a little office, in middle, just off Fifth Avenue somewhere. And he was working for, he was an editor of a comic book company, and, uh, you know, I hear Steve said, you know, maybe that that's going to be of some interest to you. So I uh, said, yeah, and I went up to see Dick, and uh, I left the office with an assignment. And then for the next year, that was part of my workload, pretty reliable part. I'd see Dick, I'd talk with him for a few minutes, I'd have a job, I'd leave, I'd bring back the jobs the next week, and get another assignment. And on one of those mornings, he said, how would you like to do exactly what you're doing now, but at three times the money? Well, that was a pretty compelling argument. He was a really eloquent guy. So, of course, I said yes. What had happened was that Dick had um, accepted a job with D.C., and he was going to bring five of his Charlton people with him. Uh, they were, I can probably remember, uh, Steve Ditko, Frank McLaughlin, uh, Steve Skates, uh, the great Jim Apparel, and me. So Dick was hired as an editor. He kind of, we tailed along after him. It had never occurred to me to go look for work at D.C. because I thought it was a closed shop. And I think to some degree that was true. I, they weren't, you know, looking for 
freelancers or writers or artists. But we went in on Dick's coattails, except for seven years of being a Marvel editor. I have been associated with the company in one way or another ever since. I got mail from them this morning. They still send me comic books. They're very nice. So while you were working in D.C., you worked on Green Arrow, and you wrote one of his best stories, and he was changed. What was the impetus for changing Green Arrow from a rich, wealthy individual to a urban superhero? Oh, there was a couple of things. I, I, I took his money away from him in a Justice League story. Green Arrow had always been a second or third string character. He was created in 1940. Uh, there were plenty of, of precedents for that kind of character. There was a, a movie serial that was shot near where I live called Green Archer. Mostly, though, it was... Uh, They'd had a tremendous success with Batman. If you look at the early Green Arrow stories, he's Batman in, in a, a different suit. He had an arrow car and an arrow cave, I think. And he was Batman, but he shot arrows. He had never been popular enough to justify his own title. He didn't seem to have much of a personality. The gimmick arrows... Uh, I think provided a lot of the entertainment of those stories. So he was a, and uh, the second part was the rich guy who's a vigilante was kind of old news. It was a, a kind of character that would have been more popular, was more popular in the 30s and 40s than in the 60s and 70s. I was not awfully comfortable with having basically a fat cat uh, uh, as a good guy. So I took his money away from him in the Justice League story for that reason, just to change the rules a little bit and to give him the kind of story that I, I, I wanted to write. Since the, the nice thing about working with characters that nobody much cares about is you do have freedom. I mean, I couldn't have done that with Batman. So then when uh, my routine with Julie Schwartz was the same as my routine with Dick Giordano had been, I walk in on one morning a week and Julie and I kind of circled around each other cautiously because by then... I was not wearing jackets and ties to the office. I was looking like that dirty hippie that I was. And I was involved with the peace movement a little bit and racial stuff a little bit. It was not a big part of my life, but it's where my sympathies clearly lay. And I also, I don't think I have a necktie right now. I needed one for something a few years ago, and Mary said, well, you know, we threw them all out years ago, or a turtleneck. Uh, and Julie was a guy who wore a white shirt and a tie and commuted to Queens 
his habits were very regular. And if you met him on the subway, you probably wouldn't think of him as a guy in any kind of creative business. <clears throat> but he was, uh, along with Stan Lee, one of the two great editors. So we, he decided to let me try a Green Lantern story, just science fiction, a time travel story, which he liked. And we, he worked differently with me than with his earlier writers, I think. But we got very, uh, very comfortable working relationship pretty quickly. And I, uh, I was in touch with Julie almost until he died. And on one of those visits to D.C., he said that they were uh, – one of their superhero books was in danger of being canceled. And he'd like to save it, and did I have any ideas? That book was Green Lantern. The idea I had was to start plotting stories from contemporary events. And if I was going to have this dialogue, it's good versus bad, establishment versus counterculture kind of stuff, I needed two characters. Uh, I needed two points of view that I could express in these characters' dialogue. And, uh, okay, we knew we were going to use Green Lantern, and who else was available? Well, the answer was Green Arrow, and who by happy coincidence, Neil had just, re uh, for, I guess for the Justice League, had redesigned his costume. It had been a kind of a nothing costume, not very interesting. He did not look very interesting. Well, when Neil was done with him, he was a modern-day Robin Hood, an alpha male with a beard, very contemporary-looking guy. Since he didn't have any much of a personality, I could I could make him a rebel, a counterculture guy who worked with and against a guy who represented the very best elements of the establishment, and that was Green Lantern. Green Lantern was like the best cop who ever lived, and the the only flaw big flaw that he had was he just obeyed. You know, these blue blue guys told him to do something, and he did it without question. That was something, uh, a personality trait that I didn't think was healthy, and by God, I still don't uh, always question authority. Well, we grew up in a world where we weren't supposed to do that. Mary, Fran, my wife, who was my high school girlfriend, and I talk about that once in a while. We were taught not to question, just, you know, listen to what the authority figure says and do it. Well, the Vietnam War had taught everybody who was paying attention that that's not a good idea. I liked and approved in certain ways of Hal Jordan in that he was trying to do what was right and working to the best of his knowledge for a, a, a better universe. Uh, so we had him, and then we, with maybe a little nip and tuck here and there, we had Green Arrow, and 
he came with some baggage. He had a sidekick, Speedy, and we gave him a girlfriend, Black Canary, to give him a kind of rounded work. And then I, I gave him some of those what actors call funny hat character bits, like he loved chili. I, I don't know particularly where that came from. But it added a little flavor, no pun intended, to the character. And working with Julie was a, a, a treat because his only interest was good stories. His ego never got into the process. And, and I can remember you know, he would ask for a word change or something like that. No serious editing at all. And yet, if if uh, if I needed him, he was there. If I walked in with the story that he was going to ask me to write pretty much worked out in my head, I would tell him that, and that was a very short visit. He'd say, you know, in effect, okay, go write it. If I went in with my covered bear and I needed help, Julie and I would talk until I had enough to at least begin the story. Uh, so he, we, I, I think, as much as anything, he saw editing not as being the boss, but as being the teacher and helper. I took uh, as as much of that as I was capable of when I became the Batman editor. It is not ever about me. It is my job is to make the freelancers, the writers and artists, look good, and I should be the invisible part of the process. Anyway. Uh, that's how we came up with that particular team up. It is some of the Batman stuff has found its way on the television as arrow stories, which is you know, kind of strange, but okay. So your work on Green Arrow, how did that affect your life as you were gaining success in the comic world? Well, at the time, there was no publicity department in any comic book. Uh, but the media picked up on what we were doing, which was radical and different. We did not do the first socially relevant comic book story ever. Some of the very early Superman stories uh, had to do with, with real-life problems. There's a brilliant story published in about 1948 with art by Joe Orlando in one of the EC books about racism. But we kind of made it the centerpiece of the series. And uh, talking to Neil recently, I found out that some of what I considered problems, he didn't. But I got to to write about stuff that was genuinely concerning me. And um, we started getting invitations to <clears throat> to get interviewed. And to, I was on Parisian television, wow. And going to universities and going on the radio, that was pretty heady stuff because, you know, comic book guys were little guys who were riding the subway and anonymous pretty much. Uh, I guess we were the first comic book stars uh, since I think Siegel and Schuster got a lot of publicity for Superman back in the 40s. Uh, 
So, okay, hooray for that. But did it influence my income? Not a bit. No, I got the same, I think it was $15 a page for those stories as I got for anything else that I did. Uh, we got some pats on the back, especially when the mayor of New York <clears throat> uh, offered to write a text piece. The Honorable John V. Lindsay, the last liberal Republican to have his job. And, okay, well, as far as the, the company was concerned, <laughs> the mayor is, is, is writing in a comic book. That's pretty good. So everybody was kind of happy. We got a few uh, hate letters, but very few. Generally, the response was overwhelmingly positive. And uh, I don't know what was in Neil's head, and mine was, well, yeah, we're pushing the envelope. And the conventional wisdom was that any given comic book would be forgotten in about a month. So I thought, uh, or three months at the outside. I thought, maybe these will last a year in people's memories. Uh, yeah, I guess that's nice. And... and I would not have believed that many years later those stories would be reprinted in hardcover at 75 bucks <clears throat> a pop. I, we had no, I have at least, I didn't have any idea that the medium would become important, uh, especially not important enough to receive that kind of publication. But it was a start, and you know, from there on, then things got quiet again, and uh, people would occasionally mention those stories and they got reprinted. Before they did the hardcover, I thought, well, this isn't going to sell because anybody who could conceivably have wanted to read these stories has read them. They've been reprinted so often, but they sold out. So good thing I'm not on the business end of comic books. Thank you for listening, everybody. This concludes part one of the interview with Danny O'Neill. Part two is coming out next Sunday, so subscribe to this podcast so it finds you instead of you finding it. As well as in part two, what we're going to be speaking about is Batman, his career as an editor, as well as his other works outside of the comic world. But before I go, I would like to promo a few things. I'm going to be doing a presentation at Long Island Con, LICON 2015, on August 15th. So be sure if you're in the region to go check that out, as well as at the end of this month. On the 28th, 29th, and 30th, I will also be at LICON doing two more panels. So if you're in the area where that is, which is located in White Plains, come out, see me, come to my panel. It should be a great experience. And hopefully I'll see you there. And I'll see you next week for part two with Denny O'Neill.